Deborah Craddock, a podcast where we sit down with everyday Americans and hear their extraordinary stories. I'm your host, Deborah Drucker. Come along with me as we discuss those things that we were always told not to talk about politics, religion, and more. I promise you'll be inspired and have your mind opened by the end of this episode. Well, it was kind of cold that night. She stood alone on the balcony Yeah, she could hear the cars roll by Out on 441 Like waves crashing on the beach Hello everyone and welcome to Democratic. Today on Democratic, we are going to hear about Elisa Eisenberg. Elisa is a therapist and the author of the Renew Program, a stress management-based plan which was federally funded and provides long-term health results. She is also an accomplished singer, songwriter, a mother, an activist, and my longtime friend. Let's get to know how Elisa became the fun-loving and inspiring person she is today. How are you doing today, Elisa? I'm doing well, Deb. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so happy you're here. So I know you live in Laguna Beach now. Where are you originally from? Well, I was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We moved a bit. Um, my parents were students when I was born. My dad was in medical school. My, dad, my mother was in art school. Then my father got drafted, actually, in Vietnam War. What branch? Uh, into the Air Force. And so we moved just outside of Washington, D.C. to uh, Maryland, Bethesda, Maryland. My mother, you know, was a, this bohemian artist. My father was military, you know, at that time. So that was interesting. Um, and then uh, after that, we moved to Massachusetts because he got his first job, uh, you know, after that uh, at Harvard. He was teaching at Harvard and he was working at the Bethesda Hospital. And, and what was your life like in Massachusetts? Uh, very suburban. Um, it was pretty ideal, actually, I have to say. Um, you know, they were able to buy their White House with the picket fence. <laughs> and we went to, you know, public schools um, and moved a couple of times to different towns. Um, we had 120 acres of conservation land across the street which was a really seminal to my development because I got lost in those woods so many times on purpose and felt free to do so, you know. And who did you grow up with there? Uh, my mother, my father, and my two younger sisters. What was the home life like? Busy, but also lots of space and time, you know. I do think back to that, uh, you know, pre computers, pre-social media, pre-all the noise that we have to entertain. It was, there was a beautiful quiet, I would say. Lots of room for creativity, especially being out in the forest, you know, living on the outskirts of town. In that household, was there any political representation or was anybody, you know, politically minded? Were politics discussed or did politics play a role in that home? Yes, to the degree that I was aware, 
you know, I know that my parents sort of strategized their approach, which I thought was very interesting, um, especially for you in this context of the podcast. My mother was a registered Democrat. My father was a registered Republican. And they felt that that way they could just monitor everybody and make informed decisions. Interesting. So was yeah. there any political conversation that you remember sitting around the kitchen table? Not too much. I mean, my mother was very interested in history. They were both very interested in fairness and social justice. I will say that. I do remember especially moving to Boston, the Boston area. I have very strong memories when we were looking for a home of going to a community. The realtor said something that my mother, I could see her back stiffen. It was something about the community being all the same. This is a, I don't know what they called it back then. Well, she meant all white, um, right? And I don't remember the buzzword at the time, but my mother, you know, said to the realtor, well, that I would absolutely never want to live here. Oh, that's amazing. And then she was so, the way she said it with such passion later, I remember saying to my mother, what, what, what did that mean? And she explained to me, um, you know, and how wrong that was. And, you know, that, you know, we all need to be aware. We all need to be mindful. We all need to vote, you know, when you're old enough to vote. And we all matter. And, you know, it's important to show up. So she was a bit of an act- activist Absolutely. in her own way. Absolutely, 100%. In her own being. Definitely. And so that must have really branded something in you. It did. Yeah. It, it really did. And did your father have those kind of convictions as well? You know, my dad was very busy growing right. up, right? He was working. I mean, it was school. He was working. He was developing all these things in his field and always wanted to be sort of that guy, you know, that was disrupting, right? And bringing in the new and that kind of thing. So he was gone a lot, but he is a passionate guy because he also lobbied in Washington for many years to help advance the field of medicine and get different things approved and monies for this and that. Um, And so your dad started out as what type of doctor? Because I know doctors are always on call, always gone. So how present in your life was he? And, and what, did, what, what type of doctor did he start out as? As a radiologist. Okay, so was he on call a lot? I think because, you know, my mom wasn't bringing in any money, you know, and he had been, you know, in med, in med school and with three daughters right away, and they were in their early 20s, you know, at that time. I think he moonlighted and, you know, did and worked a lot. Okay. Um, so, and then he was just busy in his career. So, you know, he was in and out. <laughs> yeah. And you had no desire or impulse to want to go into the medical field? I did. You did? Yeah. I wanted to shadow my dad. I grew up, at first I wanted to be a radiologist, you know, and he would take me to work. And uh, I just thought that was the coolest thing. Um, and I would try to read the x-rays along with him. Or I'd bring a book, you know, but just keep him company. How do you then arrive at your general perspective of politics? I just really think growing up in the times, you know, I was born in 1962, you know, in the midst of the Vietnam War when we lived in Maryland and seeing the hippies and the uniforms and... There was just a lot going on at that time. Started something. You know, I became aware of racial I- discrimination, and especially in the South. And 
I don't know that I embraced it. I just noticed. You know, I, I, I think I noticed things along the way. And it really wasn't until high school even. I don't know. You know, my mother always said, you have to vote. You know, you, you have to be informed and you have to vote. When you're 18, you have to vote. You can't miss an election. You have to know, you have to have a say. I had a project in school, and I think it was like sixth grade or something. Maybe it was junior high, where we had to pick an issue. This was a, a school assignment and research it. And I lived, you know, in this concert across the street from this conservation land. And I don't know why exactly I picked water conservation. And I went down to the water district and looked up all the bills and they showed me, I like walked into this empty building, right, where they were thrilled I walked in and showed me some things. And I saw that there was a bill for clean water. And I just remember that made a, such a big impression on me that you could have a say on clean water and uh, that no one voted on it or, or something. You know, there were hardly any signatures or I don't remember to get it on the ballot. And I remember thinking, oh, it's so important. People don't understand that you actually do have a voice because your voice added with somebody else's voice and somebody else's voice. Soon you have a group, you know, and groups can be powerful. Was there religion in your home? My mother used to say art is our religion. Yeah. So art was our religion. She wanted to educate us all on art, visual art. And all arts were our religion because she had so much passion for it. My father grew up in a very conservative Jewish household where we actually, whenever I'd visit those grandparents in Philadelphia, we'd go to temple. And I loved it because of the ornate and the bigness of it and the melodies. I just remember those melodies as a little kid just being swept away by them, feeling it. I wanted to ask you about that because I want to know if religion at all informs your outlook on politics. Absolutely, it does. I think that it is important to understand that. Uh, you know, I think however we all grow up, these things seep in and inform us, whether we can see it or not. When we talk about politics, that's in my mind. How do laws get written? Who are they supporting? Who can they hurt? I think all of those things are worth looking at. How do you best inform yourself? Try to do a little research, and it's harder than ever. You know, that's been really the hard part with the internet. You would think it would be easier, but we all know that it is... Uh, much more challenging to find reliable sources. I do know a lot of people that are activists, you know, so I do try to ask lots of questions. I try to look for reputable sources. I am, you know, obviously left-leaning, um, but I always want to understand the other side. And I just, I think we all want the best for ourselves and each other in a large sense. But I think it's hard to see the fine print sometimes. I think some people have a hard time seeing the other's point of view if it doesn't directly affect them. And that's why I think this podcast is so great because you're asking lots of questions and just hearing questions, hearing perspectives is I think what we all need. Well, we like to say it opens the mind, you know. 
if you only see one side of things, you're, you're only seeing half of the picture. Right. Here you are, a young girl, you're in Massachusetts, you're becoming who you are today, you're evolving, and then your family moves to Newport Beach. Yeah. You know, there really is something to East Coast, West Coast cultural divide. And then we came to California, and there was just such a disparity, especially Newport Beach, um, which is, you know, a very wealthy suburb of Los Angeles. Um, you know, it, it was very red at that time. It's the home in the John Birch Society. So I had a pretty strong reaction to um, finishing high school and growing up in that environment. At this point, are you thinking, I'm going forward to become a mental health professional, or are you thinking, I'm going forward and becoming a singer-songwriter? Uh, so I did a lot of musical theater and had voice lessons in high school. Started writing songs. I, I had uh, saved my babysitting money and bought a guitar. They got you guitar lessons, or you taught yourself? No, I taught myself. Wow. I had piano lessons. Nice. Uh, well, violin first. So you you finish high school, but you're playing music through high school. Yeah, I was in musicals and things like that. And nice. Yeah, that was my that was those were my people. Okay. You know. So you found yeah. your artist community. That's right. In the musical. Yeah. In music. Realm. Yeah. Where did you decide you wanted to go from high school? Uh, well, I wanted to study musical theater. Um, there were only two programs at that time in in the U.S., which is really interesting. Wow. There was Carnegie Mellon, which was Pittsburgh, and there was Arizona State. And my mom did not want me to be that far away from home. So I went to Arizona State mm. <laughs> for musical theater. But uh, I also was having a little bit of pressure from, uh, you know, my dad about, what you know, how are you going to be a musician? If you're not Paganini, you have little chance of surviving, you know. <laughs> so if you're not gifted from, you know, exceptionally yeah. gifted, he didn't want you to go for it. Huh? Right. Why, why give yourself the worried. angst? Of course. <laughs> so you're there and you're studying your music and your dad's giving you a little bit of like, where are you going to go with that? And what happens? I loved all things Francophile. Growing up, I learned to speak French and dreamed of living in Paris. And uh, I, I had a real affinity for the city. I just felt home in a way that was so profound. And I communicated that to my mom. And my mom was great that way. She marched me down to the Sorbonne and signed me up for the next year. And what are you studying in Paris? French literature and politics, and then also theater. And when you say politics, is it European politics? Or yes, it it's actually the history of France, you know, like, you know, wow. 16th century, 17th century, all that. So you're in okay. France, you're, you're, you're loving it, and tell me what happens after the Sorbonne. Well, I came back and wanted to graduate, you know. I ended up uh, actually getting my degree in French, music, minor, French, you know, major, and which is sort of comical because what do you do with that, you know? But uh, I wanted to hurry up and get married and, like, get on my way. So doing whatever it would be, I didn't know at that time. What was your greatest innate talent? People's stories. I love people's stories. And I think that really informed everything that I chose. I, I think I'm really, I, I'm a good therapist. You know, I try to help people 
you know, really realize their potential and to be a better version of themselves, to learn about communication and how their stress affects them. Um, and as a songwriter, I love to tell stories. You know, I love to think about, you know, how people experience certain things in the world. Does daily life influence or inspire your music? Yes. When do you meet your husband? I met him when I was 18 at Arizona State. Oh, okay. Yeah. When did you marry him? We wrote a lot of letters, actually, when I was in Paris. And that was so exciting. It was a real romance, really. He uh, proposed to me when I got home that summer. And you're married for how long? Um, about six to eight years. You know, we, we were married, then we were separated. Yeah. And then you have a son. Yes. And at, at which point did you have the son in the marriage? After four years. Okay. And so then your son is how old when you guys get divorced? He was two when we separated. And okay. I think he was five when we got divorced. And so when you get divorced and you've got this two-year-old, mm-hmm. is this when you say... I need to do something that's going to... Damn, I should have gone to law school. (laughs) (laughs) Or is this when you say, okay, I got to have a career that brings brings in the Right, I did. I did, but I also wanted to be creative. You know, I really was, as I was taking different jobs along the way and experimenting, I had a big list when I graduated college of jobs or careers that might interest, and I would go down the list and cross them off, right? Um... I knew I wanted a creative experience. I, I, I really couldn't be in an office building and do a nine to five. I just couldn't do it. So I knew somehow I either had to create my own field of study and work and figure out a way to fill a niche that was needed or, you know, I really didn't know. You and your son leave this relationship. Yeah, so um, started working in production, but... Um, had kind of a change thrust upon me because I had a car accident. Oh. Yeah. And um, that really kind of changed everything because now I had a period of recovery, you know, that I had to um, get through. And it also, uh, you know, when you say, what are the things that made you who you are today? I mean, that was one of them. And from that, my takeaway really was creativity is important. It's the essence of my soul work, really. Um, I'm a writer, and it really informed a lot of what I do, my healing work with people as a therapist, and even as a musician, you know? It all, it's all the same thing. You managed to maintain a successful music career. You had song. Right. You had a song in Sex in the City. Actually, the, I wrote the, for three seasons. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. You had music in, the, in that episodes. very successful series called mm-hmm. Sex in the City. Mm-hmm. Um, you had music on The Young and the Restless. Um, there's a number of, of television and uh, feature films that mm-hmm. you've been involved in. Yes. So I'm trying to ascertain how the heck did you how, do all these how things? How young Where woman did you do this? <laughs> who's you know recovering from a car accident oh, with a two year old child? How you then move along into these yes. fields after my divorce? Um, I realized, you know, I wanted a profession, um, and I went back to get my master's in psychology, uh, which was a great experience. Uh, then I started working in the field and really observing a lot of trauma, a lot of dysfunctional behavior, and a lot of people on the same treadmill over and over and over again. And I really hated it. 
I did not want to be that kind of therapist where I'm just sitting there and people are coming week after week telling me the same things over and over again. And I really had a crisis of faith at that moment and thought, who am I? What do I want to do? This is not going to work for me, even after all this study. Did you feel you just weren't able to help them progress out of this cycle? or? Well, yeah, I did. And I just the listening, you know, there's many avenues and, and types of therapy. There's lots of ways to relate to people. Um, they're, you know, um, they all are very led by the client and the therapist kind of reflects back in traditional psychotherapy. I also studied, you know, solution-focused therapies, narrative therapies, but when I got into the field of practice as a very beginning and young therapist, um, it just, I didn't know how that would come together for me. And it did come together, but later. So I was disillusioned with the practice of therapy. And at that point I thought, I have to write music. I don't know what else is happening, but if I don't write music, I'm gonna be depressed. And I kind of came up with a style for myself and just started writing. Did my internships as a therapist, but my passion was in my writing. So you're, you're making the music, and at which point do you start pitching your songs to these movies and TV series? And yeah. how does that happen? Luck. Um, so I... I do believe in luck. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Right place, right time, huh? That's right. And just stepping up to the plate, you know? Um, at that time, I was, I volunteered to be a music director for my son's school play. One of the parents had a husband who was a film composer. And she took note of my singing or whatever when I was leading the kids and we became friends and then asked me to play her my music, which I did. And she said, oh, you, you know, I, you should meet my husband kind of thing. Anyway, fast forward to, um... He finally, you know, sort of acquiesce. I'll give this kid, you know, 10 minutes, play me a couple songs and go home. Um, but what happened was I played him a couple songs and he hired me uh, right on the spot. He was working on a Disney film. And so that was my first um, work. And I loved it. You've moved along in the music. Okay. And you're getting all these accolades and these great gigs. Mm-hmm. Where does the break come where you decide, I'm going to go back into mm-hmm. the field of psychology? Okay. I've always been interested in psychology, and I was really interested in health and wellness and the psychology of wellness. Fast forward to, um, you know, my dad had invented the body scan and he had sort of said, gosh, we would love to have a behavioral program to help people with preventative medicine. And so this program that I uh, helped develop really comes at it. Now I really found my in for psychology because So this came at a time when the music industry was really changing. Um, I had been writing for Sex in the City and they were stopping. I felt like I might need to pivot. So at the same time, I was tasked with, huh, would you think about this? So I did think about it and I 
kind of started writing about it and, and came up with an idea. Um, and um, on the strength of that idea, I got brought into the RAND Corporation and had a big round table. And, and it's a think tank. A think tank, right. And I was sort of laughing to myself, oh, my God, I'm this musician. You know, how did I get here? Uh, and I just came up with an idea to help engage people in their own recovery. So the music is a little bit on the shelf now. Yes, it was the perfect time because the Internet was still new. And I had been thinking, what an interesting way to be able to reach more people. There was no field of telemedicine yet. But I thought this could be a way to reach a lot of people, you know, uh, with this program. That was part of it. That was part of what the, the discussion at the RAM Corporation. It was telemedicine. It was also um, this behavioral health idea of breaking through the blocks that we all have. It was looking at our personality, our lifestyle, and our motivation level as a building block, not a stumbling block. So how can we plug this stuff in and say to people, you know, you don't have to change who you are, you know, and your lifestyle matters. We just want to tweak a little bit. If we could shift as a society towards preventative medicine, it would be much better for all of us, everyday Americans, all, you know, at every level. Okay, so you develop this mental health service via telehealth. Mm -hmm. And is that now becoming the foundation for the Renew program? Yeah, it was the Renew program. Okay, so and now I see that with your program, you work with firefighters, you work with the police, you work with first responders. Tell me what your greatest, most rewarding work is. Well, because the the program is sort of a stress management-based behavioral program. Um, the DOD said, aha, we're going to give you the most stressed Americans to work with. It was a randomized clinical trial, and they gave me all police, fire, and first responders because if they can do this, you know, the general public could possibly do this too um, because everybody, let's face it, has a stressful you know, job or stressful life or, you know, but these are jobs where their lives are at stake, right? So they have recovered and they have the biggest job presumptives, health presumptives. They get the most heart disease. They have a lot of issues because of stress. So that was a thrill, really knowing that I had a way through some of PTSD and some of the things that they really suffer from um, and to help them improve their health statistics because police really have a five-year life expectancy post-retirement. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Not much. No. So, you know, we hope to improve those numbers. And really, of course, fast forward to today with all the social justice and the things that are going on, you know, um, there's a lot of stress in society and our police, fire and first responders, they're also members of our society and kind of get it on all sides and everyone has trauma to heal from. And so I do feel it is an honor to work with those people and to help them assess and understand and heal so they can be better at their jobs. So do you think aggression is the byproduct of the job or these people go into the job because they are already aggressive? I think both could be true. Okay. Interesting. And I think there are some people that are peacemakers. 
Isn't that great? And that's not in their DNA. Well, I'm a big proponent of mental health services. Yeah. So I'm very grateful for what you do, especially for the public servants, the firefighters, the police, the first responders, all human beings out there, but especially the ones that interface with other people in the public daily and in no, every, thank you. In everything that I'm they honored do. to do the work, honestly. Yeah. And we're going to move on from okay. that into um, where you are today with your feelings about, if you have any, about the political landscape in America. I believe the political landscape is where it is because, you know, a lot of people, we just have so much on our heads, on our shoulders. It's really hard to have those discussions. I'm hoping, you know, we can kind of swing back. Um, I'm hopeful because I've met a lot of really smart in people in government. Um, and I think when fear is aroused in people, that's when the biggest, you know, conspiracy theories are born and everything else, you know. We're broken as a, as a nation, and I, I want us to come together. I, you know, I talk to people all the time, and I talk in front of large police organizations even, that, you know, on a micro level, just communicating in your home with your partner, you know, can be challenging. And we love that person, and so we really want to try and build those bridges. Well, we don't love everybody out there. It gets harder as you get bigger and more of a macro level. And, you know, you know um, that when you're stressed, it's harder to communicate, you know, and sometimes, and we have to give our, our spouse, you know, a little leeway here and there, understanding what's going on. And we do that, right? But when we get out in the world, we don't do that. And it just adds to the stress. It adds to the trauma. It adds to the cacophony of voices and listening is so important for all of us and understanding and not hearing these slogans and these twists of phrases and taking them for meaning, but for looking at the original intent and trying to understand, because I think that will cause a bridge on both sides. I do believe that both sides basically want a lot of the same things. We disagree on how to get there. And so communication. And that's your skill set is yeah. communication. And that's what you do through your mental and physical health right. program. Wonderful. If you were to say what is the biggest issue, one issue to select in the political environment today, what is that issue that ails you most? Health care. Okay. Access to good health care. It shouldn't bankrupt everyday Americans you know, to live, to heal, to get healthy. So does your program accept any sort of insurance or how, do, how does that work? I'm working on that. Oh, okay. You know, you have to get in with the insurance companies. It's a, it's difficult. And do you have a contingent of your program that services people who are uninsured? Yes, I do. You know, I have worked with people on a sliding scale before, uh, but, you know, I'm always trying to lobby myself to get more coverage for everyday Americans for health insurance. I mean, I sort of broke through the glass ceiling a little bit. We are the first behavioral health program to ever be covered by insurance. That's wonderful. And I did want to mention, because we did not talk about other issues that have impacted your life directly. I know that your son is gay. My question for you is, what was it like when your son told you he was gay? 
Hmm. Well, it was a surprise. <laughs> um, I definitely didn't kind of see it coming. I don't know that I would have, but maybe, you know, maybe some parents do kind of know ahead of time, and I didn't. I didn't know what to think about it. I, I just was surprised. I mean, I guess, you know, my first thought as a parent, and I think as all parents, or maybe most parents, are you want your child to have an easy life, right? You want your child to be okay, you know? And so that was, of course, my thinking kind of went there first. I remember at that time, you know, we were all kind of young too. You know, I was a young mom and I called you, you know, <laughs> as my Jewish mama friend. And you said, come to the house. And I came to the house and you and Lee and I sat around with a cup of coffee. And I told you guys, what do you think? And, you know, Lee said, I thought you were going to tell us something bad. What do you mean? <laughs> it was just a great moment of laughter and realizing, oh, it's just news. It changed nothing to us at all. Didn't I just change wanted a thing. Alex to be happy. Right. That, and that's really the bottom line. So did you notice any change in Alex when, and I never asked you this, when he came out to you? Did, was there, did it feel like he was relieved? Did it feel like he became happier? Did he... Did you notice anything leading up to yeah. the point where he told you that? And Yeah, well, I think there was a that. lot of relief. How do you feel about his rights being attacked today as homosexuals are being attacked, mm -hmm. LGBTQ communities being attacked, mm -hmm. trans are being attacked, mm -hmm. and, geez, even drag queens are being oh, attacked. Right, I know. I mean, because they want to dress I the know. way they want to dress. Right. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect you. Right. How... Are you, is this a source of, con, you know, is this concern. a point of concern for you? Or? Well, again, I think as society evolves and things move forward, there's always a pushback. There are people who are afraid, stemming from their own unseen traumas and their own, you know, missing of information and not understanding fear. So while I see the world has gotten a lot, it's better in this country than when, actually even when he came out. Um, there's also a, a larger pushback and I, I mean, I'll always be an ally and an advocate and I'll always speak out and, and there's a lot of people who feel the same way. And so I do feel that, um, you know, he's out and he's definitely works in, you know, the field of social justice as well. And I'm proud of him and proud of everything that he does. And so, yes, I have concern. You know, and uh, I have concern for my child. I have concern for anyone's child who falls into a minority. Um, and I will always be an ally. Well, I want to sort of wind down, but I want to ask you, what is it that moves you the most right now? What is it that you are most happy doing? Hanging out with friends, <laughs> playing music. I love my work. Um, I'm so happy that we're less concerned about the pandemic now and we can kind of travel and be out in the world. Um, and that gives me pleasure. And you do have some passions in the world out there. Music in common. And yes. you received an award for that. I what, did. What is Music in Common? So Music in Common is was started uh, by a gentleman who um, lost his best friend, who was Daniel Pearl, who was the first journalist to be murdered um, 
uh, back when. He was a Wall Street Journal uh, reporter. Um, and he was murdered because he was Jewish and because he was an American. And his friend and bandmate um, started this organization called Music in Common, which brings Jewish, Christian, and Muslim teenagers together uh, to discuss issues and write music out of the experience. That's wonderful. And now what's what's next for you? I don't know. You know, the future's wide open. I just, how, much, how many hours in the day, you know? <laughs> right. But I'm trying to just follow the open doors and what brings joy and what makes the most impact. And I see there's an engagement, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. So you're willing to take a stab at it again, what, 30 years after the 20 last 20 years. <laughs> yeah, I was a little gun shy <laughs> for 20 years, but yes. Yeah. And so, your partner is a musician as well? He is a musician and an engineer um, for his career. And he works in clinical trials now, um, which is interesting too, and certainly interesting during the pandemic. So I had a lot of insight into clinical trials and all of that stuff. Um, so yeah, we're kind of, we're a nice match. We've got the music, we've got the left brain, right brain thing going on and and if we're mad at each other we can just write a song about it <laughs> <laughs> well i'm so honored that you were here to spend your time with oh, me today thank you and your story is beautiful did you want to mention how people can find the renew program yeah they can go online to www.therenewprogram.net this episode of democratic was hosted by me deborah drucker it was edited by Juan Sanson and produced by Lee Rocker and Chloe Cassins. Thank you to our engineers, Adam Burt and Hunter McKellar, for making me sound good. Our amazing music was well, performed was by Amy Nelson American and Kathy girl. Guthrie of Folk You. Be sure to rate and review this episode wherever you listen to podcasts. For more Deborah Craddock, Check out DebraCraddock.com and our Instagram at DebraCraddock. That's D-E-B-O-R-A-H Craddock, like Democratic. Until next time. Political is personal, so now.